loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming John Brooks. John, a former senior financial executive in the broadcast and media industry, has turned to writing, mental health activism, and volunteer work with teenagers in Marin County, California. He also maintains a blog at parentingandattachment.com to share his experience and educate other adoptive families about parenting and therapy techniques unique to children with attachment issues. The Girl Behind the Door, winner of the 2015 Benjamin Franklin Parenting Award for Parenting and Family Issues, is his first book. Welcome, John. Thanks, uh, thanks, Cheryl, so much for having me. I'm I'm happy to have you. Um, as I was saying before we got started, I just really appreciated your book. Um, it's it's very well written, and that's always wonderful, of course. But also. Um, you took on subjects that are so hard uh, to talk about. Uh, many people don't. I've, I've noticed I've had um, fewer uh, guests talk about suicide than almost any other kind of loss. And also talking about adoption is not something that happens very much. I know very well as an adoptive parent. So thank you for being so transparent in your book. Well, um, you know, we don't, uh, these kind of subjects are, are not the th- kinds of things that we naturally gravitate to uh, as an aspiration unless somehow we're thrust into them by circumstances that we never expected. For sure. And that brings us to Casey, your daughter. I, I thought maybe we could really start by getting to know her a little bit because um, of course, her um, you losing her is what sent you in this direction. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, boy, where would I start? Uh, huh. Well, uh, I can I can tell you about her history. Uh, Casey, um, uh, I, I probably wouldn't have described her this way when she was alive, but she had a lot of trauma in, in her early life, uh, in her in her infancy, the first year of her life. She was probably an unwanted pregnancy, unplanned, unwanted pregnancy uh, to her birth mother in, uh, in, in Poland. Uh, she uh, was a twin, and her twin either uh, died in utero or, or died at birth. Mm. And what I learned about that later, it's something, it's a, it's a something called a twinless twin. So she was separated from her twin, but never knew she had a twin. That was the one thing that we never told her. I mean, of course, we were honest about everything else. Um, she was born premature. Uh, she, I think she was born about a month or so. Well, she was about three pounds of birth. Uh, and this is 1991, so in the U.S., that probably wouldn't have been cause for too much alarm. Uh, but in Poland, it was a little dicier. Mm, uh, sure. Still, uh, as far as we know, I think she went straight from the delivery room 
to an incubator for a couple of months, and then to an orphanage where she spent the first year of her life. And um, we, you know, we, we met the caregivers at the orphanage. That's where we received her. Um, uh, and they were saints. The, or, the, the caregivers there were saints, but they were totally overwhelmed. I mean, I, I would guess that there were about 100 kids there mm. and maybe about a dozen caregivers. So maybe 10 kids for every one caregiver. Oh, so, my God. Yeah. If you just think of, t- of what it takes to care for one infant, um, you know, if you're, if you're kind of nurturing them and then imagine times 10, it, it's unimaginable really taking care of that many newborn children. Well, and, and, and that's, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the heart of the matter right there, uh, you know, because Casey wasn't, you know, most of the kids there were, uh, special needs kids. They had various disabilities. Uh, some of them at risk of, of harming themselves very seriously. So I think the staff basically spent most of their time doing damage control in case you might have spent most of the first year of her life in a crib, not because they were uh, neglectful, but it was just the best they could do. And, of course, there's been a lot of study about that kind of beginning um, leading to what people call a failure to thrive. Um, when she finally, when you finally went to pick her up, do, would you say that might have been true of her to an extent? Well, what we noticed when we, when we first uh, met her face-to-face, and, and just understand, the, I mean, when we saw the first picture of her that another couple had brought back, another American couple who had adopted a son there, I mean, we were hooked. There was no way that we were, there was no way that we were going to turn our backs on this, no matter what we found. We just saw this, we just saw this little girl and we said, uh, how, how soon can we go? How soon can we go on a flight to Poland tomorrow? Mm. Um, But what we noticed uh, in her, and again, we were, we were getting information sort of third hand through Polish doctors interpreted through American neurologists and they really focused on her premature birth as the source of concern, not so much that be, that she had been institutionalized and had that broken attachment uh, at birth. So, you know, when we when we when we met her at the orphanage, she was fourteen months old, and she couldn't do anything. She couldn't do anything a fourteen month old could do. She couldn't. Um, she couldn't sit up. She couldn't, uh, she, you know, we would kind of prop her up on all fours. She'd collapse on the, on the floor. She couldn't walk. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't do anything. She was just sort of listless and grumpy and just kind of, and it's funny because she just stared at me uh, when we first saw her in the visitation room as if she had never seen a man before, which maybe she didn't. Maybe true, huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was, you know, the girl that we saw in our first encounter. Uh, but what was miraculous about her was how quickly she adapted and uh, thrived. So literally within days, she was sitting up on her own uh, in our hotel room. Uh, within weeks, while well, my wife Erica, my wife Erica had to stay behind in Poland. She's of Polish descent and has 
relatives there, and they were kind enough to let her stay for about five weeks waiting for Casey's U.S. visa. Uh, by the time Erica came home with her, literally five weeks after we met her, Casey was walking, you know, walking the furniture. Mm. It was amazing. Incredible. And so that was, a, you know, her at 14 months. By the time she was two, she was pretty much caught up to any other kid. We really didn't think twice about her, you know, her infancy. Uh, because, again, we were worried about her premature birth, not her broken right. attachment. And also that must have been such a miraculous experience for you as parents to pick up this child who you know, had had very little nurture and then see her just blossom that way, I can imagine you you wouldn't be looking for trouble with that. You'd just be enjoying all her progress. Yeah. by the I mean, by the time she was two, she was just like any other, any other two-year-old and did the kind of, you know, good things, bad things that the two-year-olds do. Um, you know, as she got older, but but she did have uh, problems self-soothing. So she did have temper tantrums and meltdowns and crying jags and things that just seemed a little bit out of proportion, but only a little bit. Mm. Uh, we we talked to the doctors about it. Uh, they all knew that Casey had been, you know, spent the first year of her life in an orphanage. Nobody made a connection between those behaviors and her infancy. And they all just said, oh, she'll just grow out of it and she'll be okay. And then as she got into her teens, these behaviors didn't go away. Uh, they, um, they, they continued and, and, got, and got worse. But again, I, I, would, I would describe them as still within the realm of what I would define as normal. Uh, she, you know, she was just simply a high-strung girl. But she wasn't setting her room on fire or threatening us with a knife or anything like that. <laughs> right. I think and, that's part of the problem, isn't it, John? Because uh, I'm thinking of my own daughter. Um, I would similarly describe her as um, within normal limits, as they say in my line of work. Um, yeah. But I, I certainly did feel that there was an impact of those early losses. Um, but you can't ever know for absolute positive because there's no direct comparison, right? You have the kid yeah. you have and you're raising that kid. Um, but for instance, um, she had a very hard time depending on adults, my daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, just there, and I, I have another child I gave birth to who, it, it was just radically different from that, you know. So that's an example. If an adult was messing up, she was likely to step in and try to take over, you know. Mm. Just certain things that um, implied that she felt she was on her own. And she had a much less traumatic story than your daughter's or early experience. So it's hard to piece together what's what sometimes, isn't it? Oh, it is. And, and I mean, in a way, you're, you're lucky because you knew a lot more than we did. Uh, as, as Casey got into her teens, 15, 16, uh, we would take her to therapist after therapist. Uh, they all knew about, you know, they all knew about her infancy. They all knew about her behaviors. Nobody made, nobody, not a single one made a connection between the two. And uh, that was tragic. 
and if we and rather know, and and very and rather um, incredible in the sense that. I don't really entirely agree with this, but it's thought that we develop into who we are in the first three years of life and then we're set, right? Um, I I think we grow and change for a lifetime, but still that early life has a big impact according to psychology folks. And yet nobody was making that connection. I find it incredible. And you know, and I would look at Casey's behavior and her life through my own eyes. And so I thought, you know, you see, you're always trying to rationalize. You're always trying to sort of make your child's behavior normal. Nobody likes to say that there's something wrong with my child or wrong with me. Everybody wants to be normal. And uh, I would look at her behavior through my own eyes and think, well, I don't really remember anything about the first five years of my life. So how could she But then I learned about things that made total sense to me, like even going back to the connection between the child and the mother in the womb. It makes perfect sense to me now, but it didn't then. I had no idea what, and it wasn't even a matter of me being resistant to the information. I just didn't know. It just didn't occur to you. No, it didn't occur. It didn't occur to me. Well, and the other thing I just want to highlight is that you did um, do your very, very utmost to um support Casey, both yourselves and also with the people that you took her to when certain behaviors were problematic. So I can also imagine that you kind of um, trusted that if there was something you should be paying attention to, these people that were experts that you were that you were interacting with would tell you. Well, they're the professionals, so who are we to challenge or question the person with the master's or the PhD with 40 years of experience dealing with, uh, with, with troubled kids? Who are and, we? Uh, it, as it happens, um, I intersected with, with, with my own daughter with um, therapists who were also adopted. Uh, they were adoptees. And uh, I learned so much. For instance, um, they said if if you need a if she needs a timeout, um, give her a timeout sitting right next to you. Right. I, that would never have occurred to me, even being an educated professional. Uh, that 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 might be you know that's an example of you know a, a really different developmental process, right? Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. And, and all of the parents, I mean, what we learned after the fact, sadly, was that all of the parenting and all of the therapy protocols that are specific to adopted children with attachment issues are entirely different from the mainstream. I mean, uh, it, it would be entirely different from what Dr. Phil would recommend. Dr. Phil would just say, well, if your child, if your 15 or 16 year old is, is acting up and insulting you and having a meltdown, give him a time out. Well, that's not what uh, that's not what the adoption experts say. Because that's the original trauma, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not that we can be there for our kids twenty four or seven, of course, but uh, you know, purposefully going away from a child in that kind of meltdown uh, is possibly harmful and definitely ineffective, huh? Yeah, it is. So, um, when did it first dawn on you that adoption 
something about adoption might be impacting her. Well, was that right, before her death, or? Oh no, it was it was afterwards. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, we took her to to, to the experts. Nobody ever brought this up. Uh, it. It was not something that I stumbled across in just in terms of reading the news or educating myself. It just simply never occurred to me. It wasn't until I was writing this book after the fact that um, uh, actually my writing coach uh, uh, really, you know, kind of pointed me to the heart of the story, which was Casey's adoption. And I completely missed it. I mean, I read I wrote a whole first draft, 450 pages. I completely missed the whole crux of the story. And so when my writing coach advised me to look into this almost a throwaway line I made in the book about attachment, I looked it up on, on uh, Wikipedia mm-hmm. and explained everything, explained every I was just dumbfounded. I mean, it was right there in front of my nose and on Wikipedia. Uh, when I read about attachment disorder, the the meltdowns, the the the, the poor self—I mean, her self-esteem issue was beyond just low self-esteem. It was self-loathing, mm. and a lot of a lot of adopted kids grow up just really feeling like trash. You know, my mother didn't want me. Uh, it explained all of this stuff, and from there, you know, um, I went on from there. Yeah, well, it, it's, um, you know, one thing that, that was very poignant to me reading the book, uh, because this is quite personal for me, too, is that the experience of an adoptive parent parent is so, so different than that of the child. Uh, they have a, lo- a huge loss in their landscape, uh, which uh, I suppose infertility sometimes is a background loss for the parents, but that's a different loss. And um, the adoption itself, you know, being a parent, having a child is a joyful experience. And so sometimes I, I find there's like kind of a disconnect. Yeah, and parent it's, and to it's, child that way. Yeah, and it's, and it's kind of hard to, to acknowledge as much as you want to tell your adopted child that, oh, you know, you were chosen and this was meant to be and, you know, the good Lord brought us together. It's hard to acknowledge that, well, if we had gotten pregnant, we would, you know, Casey would not have been in our lives. And that's kind of a tough thing to for me to swallow. Yes. It's about time for Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's about time for be- our break, but I want to spend more time with this 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 um, intersection of different losses in the in the different parts of what we call the adoption triangle and how that how how that impacts thing, th- things. So let's go on with that when we get back, listeners. You'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and to find John Brooks, go to parentingandattachment.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. 
It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated with your host, Kristen Harper. If you want to hear some behind-the-scenes talk radio when it comes to health and wellness, the why as well as the how, be sure to tune in each week. This show will inspire you to be healthy and happy for life, as well as become the best version of yourself. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with John Brooks about his daughter, Casey, and the memoir he wrote about her, The Girl Behind the Door. And and John, before the break, we were just getting started talking about um, the different experiences within an adoptive family. Um, you know, the parents uh, may have dealt with infertility, uh, not always, of course. Some people choose adoption proactively, but often there's uh, there's a loss involved in that. But the child is the joyful part. And then for the child, of course, um, there there is um, a joy. They you have parents, they love you. But there's also such a profound loss. I ha- I heard that described once as there's a huge landscape inside of your child that you're not a part of. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, my wife and I felt like the two luckiest people in the world. I mean, we thought we had just hit the jackpot. 
Uh, just speaking for us, we never once thought of, gee, I wonder what it would have been like if we got pregnant. I never would have thought that. But then that doesn't acknowledge what Casey have been, might have been feeling herself. So imagine that, imagine that you're Casey Brooks and you, um, you live in a privileged neighborhood. You live in a, in a privileged part of the country. You're surrounded by a family that adores you. You have a great group of friends, as one of her friends says, she had a great crew. Mm -hmm. Uh, You uh, go to an excellent high school. You're going to be going off to college. You got everything going for you. And yet you can't let it in. You just can't because you don't love yourself. You you feel like trash. And And then there's a disconnect, isn't there, between what you're experiencing and what you think you should be. I, I think that might be an issue inside, too. If it's not acknowledged that, of course, you have sad feelings and angry feelings and et cetera, then it would make you feel kind of crazy, huh? Uh, I think so. And, and, you know, unfortunately for us, we can only speculate on how she might have been feeling about herself because we never had that conversation. She never really let the, uh, the therapists inside her mind uh, you know, we debrief, we debriefed with them afterward, after she died and they really weren't able to add very much because she, she wouldn't let them in. She kept mm-hmm. everything very, very, very quiet, very secret, very close to the vest. She wanted to project an image to her friends, her family, to the world out there, people at school that I'm okay. I don't need any help. I'm good. I'm fine. I'll be the one to help you. I don't need any help myself. That's yeah. the way she was. And and then um, when problems did come up, that must have been that must have seemed like a disconnect for you. Here's this person who's got. Uh, uh, obviously a sharp intelligence and, you know, definite. Um, assets, I guess you'd say, Mm -hmm. and and projects this, I can help you, I don't need anything. And then at the very same time, she's having kind of extreme meltdowns. Uh, and And it seemed to me particularly when she faced something new, uh, I'm thinking of the, the ski trip, you know, when she was trying to learn something new. Yeah. Would, would you say that was one of the trigger points? Oh, absolutely. Casey was a, was a huge perfectionist. And uh, when she tried something for the first time, like skiing or snowboarding, uh, she wanted to do it perfectly the first time. She didn't have the patience to be able to try and fail and then work up to a level of, um, of competence. On the other hand, I could I could have said the same thing about myself when I was uh-huh. her age. I was very sure. impatient when I was 11 years old and played golf with my dad. Well, gosh darn, and I wanted to play just like dad. I was 11 years old. <laughs> right. That we can't a, entirely attribute that to and my dad. <laughs> my dad was uh, my dad was still a hack at golf in, into his later years. But uh, so I always found a way to rationalize Casey's behavior. Uh, and to make that normal. And again, going back to something I said before, I think that's what we do as parents. You know, we're very protective of our kids. 
uh, and we want to make them normal. And the other thing is, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about within normal limits. She was, actually. And had her life not ended the way it did, I believe you'd have a totally different perspective on on the whole uh, on her whole life experience and her teenage years. Uh, I was thinking my my daughter is almost twenty five, um, and it and I can kind of say, "Phew, she got through that you know wicked teenage period, <laughs> right?" Yeah. Um, but but still knowing how impacted she was at that point, and for you, um, since Casey died by her own hand, I imagine that sort of blankets the whole thing. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I I don't know how many times. I mean, look, I I've probably second guessed every decision I ever made in my life. And I, there's probably not a day that doesn't go by where I wonder, what if? What if we got past this? What would her life be like? And I think she'd still have uh, difficulties and, and challenges in life. And I say that just because of the experience I had meeting other adopted adults. Um, it's interesting because when I talk to adopted teens, and I'm not saying that I've done a, an exhaustive survey of, of teens, but it, the teenagers universally don't want to talk about it, don't want to acknowledge it, they want to be normal. Whereas, whereas they just want to fit in. They want to be normal. Whereas when I talk to uh, adult adoptees in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and, and older, it was almost universally the opposite. They were desperate to find out uh, about their, uh, about their you know, biological families, even if it was painful. And a lot of times it is painful, but they just had to know. There was just that void out there they had to know. That's very familiar to me. I have a, I have a good friend who's an adoptee who's uh, mm, in her 60s, I guess. And when she was maybe 45, 50, she became very compelled. And she did find her birth family, and it made a huge difference to her. Um, but when we would talk about my daughter, she'd say, she's not going to be ready for a long time Um, because of course if you if you look for your birth family and they reject you again uh, that's horrifying yeah and and frankly in in the the stories that I've heard from from other adoptees who who connected with their birth families I'd say more often than not it was uh, it was it was not the hallmark moment that they were hoping for but again they it just was a void that they that they had to explore no matter how it worked out. It was better to know. Better to know, right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I mean, we my wife and I often thought, you know what, Casey, if you don't want to meet your birth mother, we do. <laughs> uh-huh. We'd like to find out who gave birth to you. And I had right. fantasies in my head of of going back to the town in Poland and, and just pretending like Inspector Clouseau looking up this woman and spying on her to see what does she look like? I mean, what, what does she do? What's her life about? So, I <laughs> so had you that- kind of took that up when Casey wasn't mature enough, maybe, or old enough to, to have that desire. You kind of took that up yourself. 
Well, for her, not, I mean, certainly not in a conscious way, maybe on some con- some subconscious n- level that she would never talk about, but not a, no, I mean, if it was just a superficial level, no, she never wanted to talk about that ever. Yeah. I, um, and part of that, I, I sometimes feel is uh, what I've, what I uh, imagined with my own daughter is she never wanted to introduce that between us. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're, you're right. She didn't, she didn't need to be loyal, you know, <laughs> in that way. I was perfectly fine with, with her birth parents being in my landscape. But I don't know if she believed that. That's true. And, and I've heard, and again, I can't speak from my experience, but I, I've heard plenty of stories like that where adopted children don't want to, you know, they don't want to hurt their, their birth parents. You know, they want to be, they want to be loyal. Uh, yeah, but they just, they just don't want to hurt their birth parents. And so, and they have this guilt over that. Uh, and that must be, a, it's just going to be a terrible thing to deal with. And given that this is a, a show about grief, um, those kinds of things not not faced kind of follow us, don't they? All yeah. kinds of grief that we try to put to the side or not face up to or not feel um, actually, in my in my estimation, get bigger. Well, uh, in in my case. Uh it's been it's been ten years now since she's go- since she's been gone, and I uh, I still I still struggle with just this crushing survivor's guilt, uh, and all sorts of other things that that go along with that, and you know for me it's especially infuriating because we live in this society. I think we talked about this once before that you know it's a feel good society. Get over it. Move on. You know, she's in a better place, and and these and, and these lectures come from people who've never had a speed bump in their lives. Right. You know, you see that in the media. Get over it. Move on. Hey, we want a nice, happy. Um, you know, we want a nice, happy ending. I'm shopping. I'm shopping this story around to agents and publishers, and the message I get back is, you know, it's a, it's a well written book, but man, you know, uh, it's kind of a sad story, and people don't like sad stories. You know, they they want the they want to read about the story about the guy who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. Now that's a story. They don't <laughs> want to read about the girl who jumped off the bridge and didn't. But that's that's the society we live in. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more with that. That's part of why I do this show. That w- both can be true. Um, you know, for instance, obviously, you have a a passion for. Uh, getting information out there, both about um, attachment and adoption, and also about safety. Um, we'll we'll talk about the Golden Gate Bridge in a minute, but um, I'm sure those things have meaning to you, but they don't take away your loss. No, and and people ask me all the time, "Well, you wrote this book. That must have been uh, very cathartic." And I have to disappoint them by disappoint them by saying. It wasn't really cathartic in the sense of it was something transformational. It gave me something to focus on and something to do. But you know what's really cathartic? Crying. That's cathartic. <laughs> yes, 
Indeed. Indeed. So uh, that that puts you in the camp of, um, I, I guess I would say, grief awareness uh, activists, uh, of, of, uh, uh, of which I know many, that want to get the message out there, don't try to get rid of our grief. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having it. Yeah, um, you know, and and uh, as as I said, even grief therapists, even too many grief therapists, think that their job is to make you feel better. And there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes you can't feel better. So I see a grief therapist now who's been doing this for decades, and he has a different approach. And his approach is to validate how you're feeling, as a rather than trying to help you feel better. Sometimes you won't. How could you? I mean, look at what you've been through. Um, and e- even even right now, um, I I connected with a uh, with a woman who lives nearby who recently lost uh, her son to suicide. So he was a senior at our local high school, a lot like Casey. Uh, and, and so I I'm not a, I'm not a professional. I'm not a professional grief therapist, but I think I've learned enough by trial and error and things blowing up in my face to just give her a lot of room to just and just say look I'm always here but I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to push myself on her because I can kind of feel intuitively that she's very fragile and sort of has to go along at her own pace absolutely uh, but but I wouldn't you know I mean I had people tell me after Casey died well you know after a year it'll be so much better and look some people can compartmentalize you know, some, some people can just simply compartmentalize and tell the world, I'm fine, I'm doing great, and they're suffering inside. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be honest with people, whether they like it or not. <laughs> here, here for that. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a sort of a parallel thing that um, the grief that's inherent in adoption also gets thrown under the rug. Yeah. And uh, in, in my view, that leads to much worse worse problems than just having it just have the part that's that's grief um yeah. uh what's wrong with that yeah so i think there's some some kind of parallel there there don't you yeah you know you've funny. you've ironically learned to it sounds like to embrace your own feelings of grief uh through this loss well, I, I don't know that I, I don't know that anybody would want to embrace their grief, but it's more a matter of just kind of accepting, accepting. the reality, yeah, yeah, and and just saying, look, this this is what it is, uh, and you know, I can paint over it, I can paper over it, but you know, it's still there, and Absolutely. so, you know, I think a lot of us, and just in our group that lost uh, loved ones and children at the Golden Gate Bridge, we you know, we don't get over it, but we just sort of have to adapt to a new reality. A new normal. That's, I want to talk about the bridge when we get back. It's time for our second break, but um, that's another piece of work you've been doing. That being a Bay Area person, I I um, has affected me to to read about what you're doing in terms of that. So let's let's talk about that when we get back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with John Brooks talking about his daughter, Casey, his memoir, The Girl Behind the Door. And before the break, uh, John, we were just beginning to talk a bit about the Golden Gate Bridge. And um, I don't even think we've mentioned in the show so far that Casey jumped off the bridge, as many people do. um, And that's how she died. Um, And that, as I understand it... um, led you in the direction of really working for better safety around that bridge. I wondered if you could talk some about what you encountered trying to get that done and where it is now. Sure. I think when when you uh, lose your child in an especially violent uh, and tragic way, whether it's suicide or gun violence or something else, um, uh, you know, a lot of us parents feel compelled to do something. You want to do something to keep your child's memory alive, and you want to do something 
to um, to make sure that their death mattered, that that it 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 changed something for the better. And in our case, you know, sort of like with it, like with all the mysteries of adoption that we learned too late, the Golden Gate Bridge was another one. Uh, we were only vaguely aware, like most people, that that people jumped off the bridge. We had no i we had no idea that it was as deadly a structure as it is. And so we got involved with a group called the Bridge Rail Foundation, which is a nonprofit composed of families who've lost children and loved ones to the bridge. And this group, uh, in various iterations, has been working literally for decades to get a barrier up on the bridge. And so we joined after Casey died in 2008. And I remember going to the bridge board meetings and, uh, and, and talking and sharing our stories there. Uh, also going to my congresswoman's aide, uh, the head of my church, uh, and just the public in general. We're just kind of indifferent, you know, uh, there was really no empathy for the suicidal or those left behind. Uh, everybody, you know, and think about it in the context of the gun debate now. So yes. in our case, you know, everybody said, well, Casey was a bad girl. We were bad parents. Maybe she was on drugs. Maybe she hung out with the wrong crowd. Anything but that bridge. They would blame anything but the bridge. Uh, had to be something else. And the arguments were just the same as they are with guns. Uh, you know, don't put a barrier on the bridge because it's an, it's a, it's an architectural icon and it would be like putting something on the Mona Lisa. Uh, it's a, it's a waste of money. Put it into mental health instead. Don't put it into a barrier. Uh, and then third, well, even if we did do something, the suicidal will just go someplace else. Those are all myths. There is no data to back that up. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I I have encountered before that uh, people who have actually ju- jumped off the bridge and lived. Of of course, there are a few of those, but they there are some uh, regretted it as soon as they jumped. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I would say uh, I, I think that there. Yeah, there are a handful of people who have survived the jump, and I've heard reports directly and indirectly, that a good two-thirds of those who jumped and lived said the moment I stepped off, the moment I let go, I realized I made a huge mistake. So, you know, it's... That must be so painful to imagine that that might have been Casey's experience. Well, Uh, um, it, it it might well have been. I mean, if... Uh, I don't think it's unusual for parents who have lost children to go see a medium. A medium is someone who can communicate, who claims to uh, communicate with those who have passed over. And we had some experiences that r- really were kind of <laughs> were kind of striking. I mean, we heard things that you couldn't make up. You couldn't use the kind of words that you used, uh, and and just simply make things up. So we did you know, hear a communication that that suggested that the word I heard was, she said, I was immature. That's a word that a 17-year-old would use, not a, mm-hmm. 40, not a 40-year-old medium. So just right. things like that. But, but those are the things that you grab, 
you know, whether you believe that or not, I mean, those are the types of things that you grab onto when you've had a loss like this. You want to grab on, you want to find out what, what light post she jumped from, you know, things like that. And also I would imagine I've, I've interviewed several mediums on the show over the years. And, um, one thing that they all seem to agree on is that there is a compelling desire to know that the person you love is okay now. Yeah. Uh, which I find very, I, I can relate to that, even though my losses have typically not been traumatic. There's still that um, desire to know that they're okay. Well, and, and that's true. And I, and I firmly believe that. I mean, my belief, I don't believe in a lot of things, but I do believe that they're all there. Everybody who's passed on is all, they're all there together. So I know that they're okay. And people tell me all the time and I respond by saying, yeah, but I'm not okay. (laughs) I'm Uh still here. I'm not there. I'd be happy to be there with them, but I'm not. So, you know, that's my, that's my challenge. Yeah. uh, Living with that separation in a, in a sense. Um, But I also saw something on your website where you were talking about, Uh, This is the paradox to me of loss, where on the one hand, the person is entirely gone, and and I'm speaking from my experience now, and on the other hand, they're kind of everywhere. Uh, (laughs) You know, both are simultaneously true, um, which is a little hard to learn how to live with, uh, you know, the the profound goneness along with the presence is a very paradoxical experience. Yeah, and th- that's true, and and there are things that trigger that everywhere. I mean, uh, I could drive by Casey's old high school, Redwood, and I just tear up, or drive by Jamba Juice, where she liked to get something, or uh, my favorite soft drink now is Diet Dr. Pepper. That was her drink. When I go to Starbucks, I order a Cafe Americano. That's what Casey would order. So. You, those are the, the ways that we try to hold on to them. Now, some of the mediums might say, yeah, but you need to let go in the sense of, but they need to move on to their next mission, whatever that is, not in the sense of you need to forget about them, if you know what I mean. Right. But that's a you know medium, medium talk. <laughs> well, uh I don't know. I, I somehow I have the idea that uh, it would take a whole lot for someone in this realm to hold someone back if it's time to go. I know. But I know. <laughs> maybe that's a fantasy on my part. I don't know. Yeah, well, there there uh, were I uh, up in, for probably the first five, six, seven years after Casey died. I couldn't let go of the pain. The pain was the, I mean, I had to hang on to the pain because that was the only way to keep her close to me. And it took a long time to be able to move past that. I mean, now I can, I can talk about her and share funny stories about her because believe me, that could, I mean, that could fill up a whole book, uh, all the Casey shenanigans. Um, but I still can't do other things. I, I just can't really look at her videos. It's too painful. Um, it's hard for me to look at her pictures, even though we have her pictures up everywhere. But um, I wouldn't say time heals, but it does make things a little bit less unbearable over time. 
so I'm 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 a different person, and I'm in I'm in a different place now than I was maybe five years ago. And I think there's a way that we're not just talking about losing someone. We're talking about number one, losing a child, uh, which uh, that that you were still physically responsible for. And we're also talking about trauma. That was a very traumatic. Uh, of course, it maybe often or usually is if you lose a child. Children don't die of old age, you know. Yeah. But um, I, I would call what you experienced with Casey particularly traumatic. Yeah, and I would, uh, you know, when I when I look at the things that really helped us get through this, uh, I would put Casey's friends at the top of my list. Those those were the kids who the experts would say, "Oh, that crowd. Oh, what does that mean? That crowd? Do you mean the bad boys and the bad girls?" Well, you know what? They're a lot better than my friends. And so, you know, when I meet other parents, like this woman I just told you about who just lost her son, I asked her, are you in touch with his friends? Uh, because they, I mean, we have a party for their for her friends every year around Christmas time. And we've been doing it now for 10 years, and the kids show no signs of being bored. They come back every year. So that you know, really helps. I was actually very impressed with her friends uh, um, in this regard that they've made something creative. They've creatively responded to their their loss of her. Um, songs and videos and working on the bridge group. And um, this is a pretty activist part of the world that we live in, Yeah, I would say. And um, her friends are activists. They're yeah. uh, in, in every, in the best sense of that word. I was very touched by by watching um, videos you have on on your site that they made, and um, I, I I have some hopes that this generation is facing facing things in in different ways than us older people. Yeah, I think that I, I mean I think her friends are awesome. I think that whole age group is awesome, and I'm really sick and tired of hearing people my age and in, in my generation just kind of you know, belittled them and, and patronized them it, it, as though they have nothing meaningful to contribute. I mean, for crying out loud, look at the kids now in Florida and the teenagers they've inspired to do something about gun violence. I Incredible, say, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I was just watching, the, there were, the walkout was today, as you probably are aware, um, the national walkout and um, just some of the things that are online that young people are saying about um, their experiences, just profound. Well, they're so articulate, too. And I've spoken, uh, I've spoken in front of the media, and I know it's, it's difficult to kind of keep your train of thought and not get hung up with us and us. And these kids just get in front of a camera and get in front of a mic, and they just speak like naturals. Let it's it so rip, impressive. huh? Yeah. yeah. This is such a great place for us to end today because it does give me a lot of hope that some of these issues that kind of go, go under the table, uh, this, these, these youth are bringing out in the open, and I, I find it very um, enlivening to watch that happen. I yeah. really want to thank you so much for being with me today, John. It's It's been a... Um, a meaningful conversation to me. Well, thanks for thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
Good. And to find John Brooks, go to parentinganattachment.com. There's a blog there. There's uh, uh, the work that John's done, a link to the book, etc. So please go check him out. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.